Dominic Waddles. And I'm Mark Rosenblatt. In your own and this is the M Detroit Podcast. M Detroit is a podcast where we interview the artists of Detroit. We discuss their art, their lives, and so many other topics. And in doing this, we hope to create a platform for artists to share their work. And for you, the listener, to find out more about that artist. Dom, why don't you tell us who is this week's podcast? So this week's podcast is the two powerhouse duo, RJ Spangler and T-Bone Paxton. Why don't you tell us about them, Mark? Man, this podcast, we talked about, I, I don't know what we didn't talk about. We talked about, honestly, we talked about everything. <laughs> RJ and T-Bone have been part of the scene for so long. They started playing in a band called Kawumba, which is now called the Sun Messengers. And this this all started in the 70s. So we talked to them about that, you know, them growing up in Detroit and playing in Detroit in the 70s and 80s and, and, and through the years and, and all of so many stories that they they had. It was it was so amazing. And we sat there and we and we listened and it was just it, it was just a flashback in, in, to a a time where you know music was this was everywhere. So I mean, their stories just on their own are just so magical and inspiring. And uh, we had a, a really great time. Mm-hmm. They also talked yes, to us about. They also talked to us about, um, you know, how to actually be not just a musician, but like to be an entertainer, to make the crowd or your audience, whoever it is who's listening, to actually really like be entertained. Uh, it, was, it was a wonderful podcast. So without further ado, please enjoy RJ Spangler and T-Bone Paxton. All right, welcome back to the New Detroit Podcast. I forgot my mount, so I'm holding the mic this time. (laughs) (laughs) But today's podcast on Podcast 4, we have RJ Spangler and T-Bone Paxton. How are you guys doing? Uh, Well, considering COVID days and, you know, this is the day before lockdown for three weeks. uh, Right. We're on a precipice of that anyway. You know, I, I'm okay. I'm, 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 I'm all right. T-Bone? Man, I'm doing good. I'm flattered that you asked me to be here. Yeah. And I'm just uh, happy happy to be back on the east side. My old stomping grounds drove across town to be with you guys. We're in my living room, for, the, for those of you in Right, uh, right. We are in podcast RJ's living room. room. Yeah. yeah. RJ in the house, in his house. In my house, yes. Uh, yep. yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the way we like to start these off, these podcasts off, is by reading you guys your bio. Uh oh. And uh, after that, we have some questions. You know, we want to just get right into the serious nitty gritty. Oh my. Yep. All right. So uh, we're gonna read your bio. So here goes. Um, lifelong buddies R.J. Spangler and T-Bone Paxton started working together in 1980 with a very popular band around Detroit called the Sun Messengers. They toured the East Coast, Midwest, and Deep South for a number of years. Back then, T-Bone was awarded a Motor City Music Award for Best Trombonist. Since that time, 
He has also become quite an engaging vocalist. In fact, he has been nominated the last two years as Best of Jazz Vocalist at the Detroit Music Awards. The two are cornerstone members of the nine-piece band Planet D Nonnet, and as such have toured to 11 states, released as many CDs, and garnered six Detroit Music Awards. Now they have to offer the Stripe Down Project just four musicians with a new CD about to drop. And this was referring to Back in Your Own Backyard. Right, which came out last March. Correct. Yeah. Uh, T-Bone and RJ have performed in New Orleans and back singers from there on their tours up north like Johnny Adams, Earl King, Eddie Bowe for many years. So the music of NOLA is always prominent in their performances. Yeah. From trad jazz to R&B. The Great American Songbook, Johnny Mercer, Hoagie Carmichael, Duke Ellington, and the Harlem Jive of Fats Waller as well as the proto-jump swing of Louis Jordan are also a big part of each performance. Add some gut bucket trombone and RJ's experience with blues, swing, and world jazz on drums and you have an idea of what to expect at their shows. They are favorites at festivals, art fairs, jazz clubs, brew pubs, private parties, as well as libraries. So now hearing your bio, what would you guys add or change to change it into present day? Well, I need to update that the CD has already come out. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 one thing. Uh, otherwise, that's that's pretty accurate. You know, T-Bone and actually and I we actually met in the 70s and started playing together, but we we um I started in a band called Koomba, which means creativity in, in uh, the points of Kwanzaa, as you, you maybe you might know this. I don't know, Dominic. I, I've, I've met people who don't know what the points of Kwanzaa are, but one of the points of Kwanzaa is Koomba, creativity. And we had, were in a band called Koomba in the 70s. And by 1980, we changed the name to the Sun Messengers, and that's really officially when John and I started working together. I'd say you you were kind of a peripheral member of Kumba, John. Yeah, I, I thought I was. Um, I thought I was a member. I thought I was in Kumba before we changed the name. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, though. Maybe. Yeah, not. yeah. I mean, I think I think you were there at the last iteration of Kumba. At the very last, but you know, I was hanging out. Yeah, you since were there. I saw the first my first concert that I saw of Kumba was the the infamous historic performance at the Lions Club on on Oh you were there Harper and nineteen seventy eight I think yeah care to share the story of this yeah. infamous performance? Oh it was unbelievable. RJ he's, he's tells well, much better. This is this goes back to when I was a kid, you know. I mean we we uh we had a, a band we'd put together um with just kind of like a bunch of guys that lived. Okay, we're just blocks from where this all started. Right mm -hmm. now, we're we're in Gross Point. For for those of you who are listening to this this podcast, we're we're just a few streets from the city of Detroit, though. Mm -hmm. It's Nottingham, Beaconsfield, Lake Point, Maryland, Weyburn, Alter Road. Alter Road's the first street of Detroit. I lived in the next street over, Ashland. This is. 1977, I lived on Ashland in Detroit. Just a few blocks over from here. But it was a whole other world. It was Detroit. And I lived on a canal. And it was a group made of people that lived in Detroit in that neighborhood. It was a mixed-race group. And 
most of the people in that group, it was about a 12-piece group, most of the people could walk to rehearsal or lived in the house. It was sort of a communal band. Like uh, the baritone player Jabbar lived in the group, the trumpeter Musa lived in the group, lived in the house. They both lived us. I lived there, of course. It was my house that I was renting. Uh, Akunda, who played percussion, lived on Manistique, the next street over. Uh, the original trombone player was named James Bud Kane, lived on Manistique, mm. the next street over. James O'Donnell, a trumpeter, lived like four blocks over on Lakewood. You're getting a picture of this is a real neighborhood band. Mm -hmm. And that was this group called Coomba. And, and uh, just a couple years ago, we released a 40-year anniversary of that band, a CD. Mm. And, and our, our drummer, I played congas in that group, the, the, the drummer, Sule, he just died uh, just a week or so ago. Mm, October wow. just, Yeah, just a few weeks ago. And, and, and uh, he survived COVID. But when he went in to, to find out that he had COVID, they, they did this blood work and found out he had riddled with cancer and died. Wow. Oh, man. Yeah, he was a beautiful cat, a hell of a drummer, and a friend of mine for all these years. And, and so um, we had this band. It was like a community neighborhood band. We were just kids, you know. We, we would play at, like, backyard parties, and, and, and you know, we, we didn't know it much about, you know, the music business or anything, you know. We were mm -hmm. just young, young guys, you know. We were playing street parties and at, at, at uh, art openings, and yeah. coffee houses, you know, I mean, things you do when they're really young, you know what I mean? Trying to get something going on in the music world. But we weren't were, thinking about the music business. We were just <laughs> trying to get out and play. But you were all a very musically well-informed Yeah, we had th these two older guys that lived at my house. One was 35 and one was 36. And they had a lot of experience that they were teaching us, right? Mm -hmm. They were, like, mentoring us young guys, right? Right. And, and, and so... We were rehearsing three nights a week, whether we had a gig or not. We, had, we were very disciplined, and we were transcribing and learning and practicing and all this stuff. And during the days, during, we, would, we would shed, and it was, it, was, it was a real jazz experience. And, like, Belgrave didn't live far away, and he'd come by and check up on us and other guys. It was a real heady time in the 70s, you know what I mean? And there was a lot of musicians lived on that same block, like a great German named Danny Spencer lived on that block. Danny Spencer played, and like he, 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 when he left that block, he moved to San Francisco and played in Joe Henderson's band. Mm, wow. Yeah, he was, that was, that's how, yeah. When he was in Detroit, he played in Ken Cox's band, the CJQ. They made two records on Blue Note with him mm. on drums. Yeah, yeah Ken, Danny Spencer's a great drummer, still yeah. alive. We, we talked to Vincent Chandler, and he was telling us about Ken Cox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, his 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 drummer on on those two Blue Note records he made was Dan Spencer. Mm. He was my neighbor wow. on this, like three five doors down across the street. Amazing on this block, and on the other end of the block was a woman named the same block. Not, I'm not saying like up the same street, the same exact block five doors down was a woman named Mickey Braden. Mickey mm. Braden sings on uh, at least one, if not several, James Carter CDs. Mm. And she's made a career singing on off Broadway and Broadway, doing like uh, uh, Ma Rainey and, and and Bessie Smith and that kind of thing. Mm. And she, these are my neighbors. This is where I live. It's just I just happened to move there. Yeah. And 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 kind of built this kind of nutty coterie of of 
jazz disciples around me. And, and, and I, I was hanging out downtown, and, and especially in the Cass Corridor, there was a group called the Grio Galaxy. Have you guys ever heard of them? No, no. The Grio Galaxy was, was a group built around a guy named Farouk Z. Bay, who was this great avant-garde saxophone player. And he had a bass player named Jaribu Shahid. Mm-hmm. Jaribu was a hell of a bass player. He plays every, every uh, Tuesday or every other Tuesday that he switches off with Pedras over at the Dirty Dog. He tours around the world with Roscoe Mitchell from the Art Ensemble of Chicago, and he tours around the world with uh, David Murray. He's a world-class oh, wow. bass player. He's incredible. He's my age. He's, but he was already a great bass player then. And, and we would go see these guys playing at this, at this place called Cobb's Corner, which is not what Cobb's Corner is today. Yeah, was, well, right. Cobb's Corner, on a Monday night at $2 a head, they would be making $800 at the door. That's amazing. In 1977. Mm-hmm. That's how many people would come to go see live jazz on a Monday night. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. People, went, and it would be my age, be 18, 19 year olds. You could drink legally at 18 when I was 18. Mm. So people were out, and black people and white people, you know, and it would be 65 year olds and it'd be 18 year olds. And it'd be, it, it was, races were mixed up. Ages were mixed up. People, you didn't. If you loved the music, people didn't care. You know that was right. the era that we grew up in. And the other thing that was great is we grew up in an era when, like, when we played gigs. There'd be girls your age at that gig. <laughs> yeah, <no>, man. <laughs> right. I'm gonna move off. That's not something. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about that after the podcast. Yeah. Is okay. Right. 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 Because men like this sort of thing. Anyway, so moving right along. Um, Anyway, so right we, we were building up this this thing with Kumba, and 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 we were we were like disciples of, of of music, and it was a lot of odd metered stuff and and modal jazz, and 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 we were highly influenced by this group, the Grio Galaxy, and, and you know what a Grio is, right? Okay, well, a Grio is is a French word, but it's used in Senegal as a keeper of the tribe's history. Of the of the Senegalese and the Gambia, uh, uh, in Gambia, the great, he plays the kora and he sings these tribal songs. And these it, the history of the tribe is kept in song form. Mm. They sing these songs. So Grio goes to that. So Grio G R I O T Grio Galaxy. Mm. So that's some deep shit, right? It is. Yeah. Okay. So. We were devotees of this group. We were, de- we were deep into Sun Ra. We we're deep into all this kind of stuff. And, and so we had this band. We were creating our own our own language because Jabbar, who was like 15 years old than us, he's, he's writing us songs. We're going out and hearing live music all the time. And so we would go out and play all these little parties in the neighborhood around here and, and art shows. And people were, were starting to, and like I said, coffee houses. And people were getting to see who we were. And so Rick... Who was my partner, Rick Steiger? We co-founded this band together. His dad belonged to his Lions Club over here in Harper on the East Side, and he said, "I think I can get I can get Dad's Lions Club for the night. We can put on our own show, and we'll charge the door, and we'll, we'll we'll do something, you know, put on our own gig, because this is before DIY existed. You know, the idea of do it yourself, right? We just you know, this is my my mentor, John Sinclair. You guys hit to John Sinclair at all? He was uh, kind of a, he invented the Annabelle Blues and Jazz Festival, and he, he kind of taught me a lot of things about 
promotion and presenting jazz on a do-it-yourself level, right? Hmm. And and so uh, uh, we we just made up our own flyers and got this hall for the night, and we put on this show. As John said, it was a legendary show because. It, it was it was completely packed, and we had never put on our own show before. We didn't know anything about doing this, but it was it was a wildly successful night, and we saved all the money and we made a recording of, of the band. It was the goal was to take the money and record the group, and and we went. It was my first time ever being in a recording studio, and uh, we still have a picture of, of us from that day. No one can find the recording. You know, we've lost that because that was over 40 years ago. But a picture oh, yeah. still exists from, from us going into the studio that day. And, and uh, that was that in 1978. And John wasn't even in a group then, but he was around. He was at that gig. Well, I, 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 James had brought me around your house before that. Right. But that was the first concert that I saw. And uh, But, you know, Blood was already there. Gary Lane was there. So those those spots were covered. I was just... James wanted me to come by and, and see what an amazing experience it was, and, and that's that's why I ended up being there. James being James O'Donnell, who's mm-hmm. been my mm-hmm. co-leader in these various projects for all these years. James O'Donnell and John Paxson went to high school together at Denby on the east side. Mm-hmm. They were in a band together in high school. So, yeah, James is my oldest yeah, you talk, living John. friend in, in, my in mouth colleague here. in life, you know. Um, I have other friends that I, people that I knew that I went to school with that predated James, but they're not personal friends. James is my oldest friend in life. Mm. Um, and uh, we met in Denby High School in 1975. And uh, we've been musicians and friends and colleagues ever since, brothers, just like RJ. So, you know, James brought me around and, uh, and I got to uh, experience the band and, uh, it was quite an experience, you know. It really was. It was an amazing that that concert at the Lions Club was just filled with so much energy, and I was already exposed to a lot of really, really good music my whole life. My father was a musician, professional musician, and uh, and uh, I'm the youngest of nine and the seventh son, you know. So my dad was mm-hmm. born in 1916. So this new thing, the radio, came out when he was eight years old, 1924, you know, and this newfangled music came on the scene, which immediately took his ear. And so he was a jazz age guy, you know, and uh, he got his, he got his Detroit local five union card when he was 15 years old and had it for 63 years or until he died, you know. John's dad was not only a musician, but he was also an educator in the Detroit public school system. Mm. He taught band in Detroit schools, and, and and so I think John should tell people who might be interested. Some of his students went on to be. You, you mentioned Ken Cox. Yeah, Kenny Cox was yeah, one of guys. was one of John's dad's students. Wow. Yeah, Kenny Cox was a a capable musician by the time he met my father uh, in middle school. I believe Kenny was uh, in the uh, Von Steuben years. I mean, my dad was at Von Steuben. Um, middle school middle school and uh, uh, so Kenny recognized that my dad was a, a, a skilled and advanced jazz musician so Kenny would go to him and say Mr. Paxton can you show me this can you show me this can you show me this and uh, yeah Kenny Cox would always give me a hug and he said I just loved your father you know and uh, George Davison uh, my dad taught him his rudiments 
he learned his snare rudiments uh, from Freddie Paxton, uh, and that was uh, George was also, I believe, at at, at Von Steuben. Because they're contemporary at Kenny's, right, George and uh, yeah, maybe 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 it was two years younger, but yeah, could have been Greisel, could have been Von Steuben. My dad's first two services for Detroit Public Schools were uh, Von Steuben and Greisel, and then he went to Nolan Junior High School, spent twenty one years there, mm. uh, and at Nolan Junior High, um, Benny Maupin was my father was a, a trained clarinetist. Uh, all the way up through his master's degree uh, in education, he was a trained clarinetist, but a self-taught pianist. And uh, um, so that's uh, he worked on. He played gigs in uh, cocktail lounges and in big bands playing piano. Yeah, yeah. My dad was a professional pianist. My 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 father had one sister, and the parents, my grandparents, could only afford one private lesson per student per mm. per child. And my, my, my grandpa, he had a, he worked uh, as a boiler inspector at Fort Rouge plant and had a barber shop on Michigan Avenue. And even then it wasn't enough money to, mm. you know, really live really uh, a fancy lifestyle, but, uh, they, they got lessons and his sister, uh, Doris took piano and my dad took clarinet lessons and, uh, but he learned every piano lesson that mm. she got yeah yeah he went to school on her and, and doubled and uh, so so yeah um, well, betty moppin was yeah, right yeah. betty moppin was a, a, a student at nolan and my you guys dad, know that name yeah benny my, moppin. my dad moved you, you Ed, hunters, Ed hunters like yes a bunch of stuff and miles yeah. davis yeah yeah my dad yeah. moved to benny moppin's a, a big well-known in the jazz community for his work on bass clarinet yeah, he was my tenor dad, sax and bass clarinet. My, I met him once. My dad moved him over to bass clarinet. But then he, <laughs> he, he's he was famous just, for that he's now. He's just a kid from this Detroit in the music schools named Betty Moppin. And he yeah. played clarinet. And my dad said, well, you know, I need you to play bass clarinet. And he <laughs> took one. That's what band teachers do. They, these were just kids to my dad. My, these, I always asked him about this. He said, Dad... Does does it mean a lot to you that you you touch so many of these great musicians and change their their lives and stuff and they became these great professional artists? Says, John, they were just kids from Detroit. My job was to turn them into better human beings. That was mm. my job as a teacher was to make them better human beings and make them better citizens of this world. And I guess I succeeded. Mm. Case closed. He didn't really talk about it much, yeah. you know. Johnny Badanchik, the one the one of the world's great rock and roll drummers in all history. Uh, started out with my dad. My dad taught him his rudiments, but you know, uh, um, it's there's a big discussion about that, you know, because uh, is uh, Jimmy McCarty says I taught him how to play drums, and that's a fair statement, you know. Jimmy McCarty was a heavy rock and roll player, and he taught him how to do what he needed him to do. But my dad taught him his rudiments, and and Johnny Bedanjic to this day still says no, 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 no. Freddie Paxton taught me how to play drums. So that's my dad, you know. If it's, if it's 60, 50, 63 year uh, card carrying member of of, of local five uh, played played uh, all over Metro Detroit for his whole career and Mackinac. And well, yeah, he, we we could go on for a long time about my dad's history. And right now, I'm, I'm playing the London Chop House. My dad played the London Chop House for 50 years. Wow! wow. I was just looking at uh, a buddy of ours uh, who worked at Joey's Stables for 15 years. My dad had a house gig at Joey's Stables in Delray for 15 years. Uh, my dad was. Uh, why Joey Stables in Wyandotte, John, I think? Well, Delray. I mean, I thought it was in Wyandotte, too, oh. but Nolan, Nolan uh, 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 
said Del Rey, and he uh, worked there for maybe 15 years. Oh, so. yeah. Well, yeah, no one knows. Yeah, exactly. He worked there for 15 years. But it was just with Detroit stories, man. You know, yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, uh, we used to go there when I lived on that way. Big, long history. You know, my dad was a great player, man. He was one of those guys that uh, <laughs> could play in all 12 keys and improvise in all 12 keys. And, and, uh, he, if he had a bass player with him, you know, they wouldn't even talk to each other. He would just do an interlude and set up a tune uh, with a rhythm dominant pedal point or something and then go in and play the tune. And then they would they would modulate in through an inter interlude and go off into another tune. He'd, he'd just do five song medleys and stuff and just play through all the keys and stuff. And he's just a remarkable guy. So, John, so t t tell, tell, tell people about like growing up in a house like that. Uh, I know uh, you're, you're, you're. That was my original point. The, the record. Yeah, that was heard. my original point. So, see, I came from this house where my dad was always going out of the house to play music, sitting Wearing down the house to yeah. play piano. Um, uh, my older brothers would be having rehearsals with, with full size bands in the living room, you know. But I had this record collection from my mom and dad that was a, a fantastic, man. You know, I mean, all of the great jazz players pre war, you know. Pre-war jazz players, you know, my dad's favorite piano players were uh, um, Earl Hines and uh, mm. um, Art Tatum mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. and uh, Earl Garner. Sound like your house? Dominic, yeah. What's it like at your house? I don't know. You know? <laughs> There's a lot of Oscar Peterson. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 Oscar yeah, too. yeah and yeah. my dad loved the piano playing band leaders, you know, Basie and Ellington, man. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, But Teddy Wilson was probably the guy that he, he went towards most. Oh, man. Can't go wrong with Teddy Wilson. Yeah, because Teddy was kind of in the Teddy was kind of in the middle, you know. He could play real percussive. He could play great support. He could he could play really nice right hand solo. Uh, he didn't have a giant left hand. My dad didn't either. So he, he he simulated Teddy Wilson's way of striding without having that gigantic handy tenth. You know, you know the best striders have that tenth. They want to be able to drop that tenth. You know, and uh, so yeah, Teddy Wilson was huge. But man, I had this amazing record collection. You know, full of. King Cole Sinatra. Trio and and uh, Billy Holiday, Billy Holiday mm -hmm. yeah. and and mm -hmm. Ellington and Basie and and uh, other things like the world's greatest jazz band that that was a very influential Yank record. For Yank Lawson, Yank Lawson, and Bob Haggard. You know, we yeah. just had a lot of cool big stuff noise to from Aneka. The jazz vegetables, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not as in like vegetables, like humans, but as in like your greens. You know, <laughs> like the stuff that you need to like digest. You know, oh, get, okay, get okay. your vitamins. Took me a minute to get that one. All right, yeah. And and it, yeah, I was just about to say the j jazz vitamins, if you will, the jazz vitamins, jazz vitamins, vitamins. Yes. So then I also had a gigantic classical library and 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 opera and 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 and, and American Songbook Broadway and stuff. So we, we had all of this stuff, and uh, and then I being the youngest of eight. All of my older brothers and sisters, I had all of their records too. Oh, geez. So, you know, I, they were really. I mean, days of trumpeter, I, the first brought, 10 years of my life. Player, you know, yeah. The first 15 years of my life, I was absolutely consumed with listening to music and just playing my instrument and just listening, listening, listening. I mean, I would listen to the music at 110 dBs as loud as the stereo could go, or I would be sitting down in the, in the room by myself with headphones every day. All, I mean, I just consumed it. So that when you get that for the first 10 years of your life, you're just so completely ingrained into mm -hmm. it, you know, and, and that, that was huge. Now, 
my dad's education stopped in 1945. Where, where did he go? He, did, he, did he go to Wayne State? Yeah, he graduated from Wayne, but his musical education stopped after World War II because he got married mm. and went on to have this gigantic, huge family. So all he did was gig five nights a week and teach five days a week. So he taught five days a week and gig five nights a week and was busy trying to build a family post-war. Well, he was and sending so he, how many kids to Catholic school? Exactly. Well, he didn't study bebop. <laughs> Basically, what I'm saying is my dad stopped at the end of World War II as far as, like, he didn't he have... He wasn't to, a Coltrane man. He didn't have time to delve into bop. You know, he yeah. he, he appreciated it. He loved it. Harold Garden is as, as modern as he got. Yeah, but, but you know, he, he he didn't have time to go into it. You know, he, he loved Clifford Brown and Max Roach, but it was just... It wasn't, you know, he was about doing his thing, doing it well, making sure there was money on the table to feed his growing family. So he never really stopped. But, I mean, I still had all of that music, and, and that's where my roots came in. So I needed this box set that I listened to, practically wore it out, this Smithsonian Institution's collection of classic jazz. I, I, I wore that out. So that's where I started to get exposed to Charlie Parker and Coltrane. And, and 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 this was just smatterings and this and that's, you know. But then when I met RJ and the crew, they opened up my whole world. I'd already had we, so much music yeah. already in me. And they showed me that, man, dude, you only seen like a couple of miles in the music business. We yeah. want to take you for a walk around the state or the world here. And they just, and you were ready, John. They opened up my mind. and that's <laughs> you, what, but, but he was right ready for it, man. Yeah, they opened me up, man. I didn't know nothing about Sun Ra, you know. And uh, I mean, you know. The, but now it, you do. Yeah, it was on there. You for know? 40 years, you know. Yeah, and you know. <laughs> Yeah, I know, but I'm just saying that's how my world opened up. And then when I saw these guys doing all of this very, very vibrational, emotional, soul-shattering, shaking stuff, I mean, that's what I saw at the Lions Club. Plus, we were three deep, man. I, you know, I had I had a girl on my lap and another girl on one leg. We we were stacked up three deep to to be in this place, man. I mean, there was like it was packed. You know, 150. We're people. COVID times. We don't understand what it's like to be on top of people, but it, yeah, back then you could do that. You know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but it, it was really vibrational, and and it just blew me away. And so then I started coming around as much as I could, and uh, but I was a a Wayne State music student, so I didn't really join the band officially until two years later. Yeah, a long yeah. story. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. That's a, I guess that's what we're here to do, right? It's a podcast. It's where you talk about things. So, yeah, we like it. This, yeah. It's awesome. The tings. Yeah. So, John and I, I guess, jump ahead. This band named Coomba, by 1980, changed its name to the Sun Messengers, and we kind of changed our, our direction and, and became a little less avant-garde. And, and, and we were playing, like, some... New Orleans type stuff, you know, like we got into like Neville Brothers. Are you hip to that kind of thing? Okay, well, you got. I'm gonna leave you all with homework. Um, please do. <laughs> please um, do. leave the audience with homework too. Yeah. Uh, oh, I mean, y'all. I mean, y'all in the microphone and y'all in the room. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Mardi Gras Indians. Everybody who's listening. Well, that was a you, little later you, too. You, but but still, you need to to to, to Google Mardi Gras Indians. Uh, but we, this is the direction we started moving into, you know. Because you mentioned in this bio 
that we we started back up these New Orleans guys. And mm. This is because in the '80s we started moving into playing songs by New Orleans guys. You know, we were doing Ico Ico and this kind of thing. We started learning these songs from the New Orleans diaspora, um, and we started doing swing tunes. And 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 that's because Sunra was playing like Fletcher Henderson tunes, and we thought, man, these songs are cool as could be. What's this about? Well, our guitar player at the time was a guy named Paul Carey, which I had grown up with Paul right here in Gross Point. His name was Paul Bauhoff, Paul Carey Bauhoff, but he, no one could say Bauhoff, they would say Bauhoff, you know, he never said it right, so he just went by Paul Carey. Mm. Paul, unfortunately, died two years ago, but he was one of my friends since Boy Scout camp, you know? We grew up together. And Paul had been playing some gigs with some nutty guy. It was, uh, how do I explain this group? It was kind of a black society group. You know, we would play black cotillions, you know, black dances. and yeah. uh, But this guy was not much of a musician, but he felt it was a good idea to have a white guy in the band. So he would hire Paul to be in the group. And Paul thought... Some of these guys are really good musicians. So he started getting their phone numbers. And one of them was this guy named Lou Barnett. And Lou Barnett was a hell of a saxophone player. Lou Barnett had played gigs with Billie Holiday. Lou Barnett had spent years in the Aretha Franklin touring road band. Lou, Lou Barnett was a saxophone player. He, he was a Paradise Valley legend, you know, played at the, the Flame Show Bar, the Club yeah, 36, the Club Sudan, the Club Congo. He played all up and down. Now, you guys know anything about Paradise Valley? Uh, this is education. You guys need to be on all your podcasts. I, I'm telling you, education, or as Harold McKinney would say, edutainment. Uh, Paradise Valley was was the entertainment district that, that culminated at the end of Black Bottom that was now where, where 375 comes in to downtown. They wiped, they wiped out Paradise Valley. It was the downtown of black Detroit. And they wiped it out to bring the, the freeway into downtown Detroit. But this is where black Detroit strutted its stuff. Hastings. For all the clubs were Hastings Street. Hastings Street. Yep. This is where all the record stores, some were owned by Jews. Because this is where, like now you go to a lot of stores in the black neighborhoods and they're owned by Arabs and so forth. Well, back then, Jews owned a lot of the mercantile shops, but there were. This is where you went to a lot of the the nightclubs, Flame Show Bar, about three sixes, Club Sudan, Club Congo. These were the great nightclubs of Detroit, and this is when Detroit was operating 360, 24 hours a day. All the shifts were going all around the clock at all the automotive plants. Detroit was the fifth largest city in Detroit in America at this point. You remember this? Mm -hmm. At one point, Detroit was the fifth largest city in America. It's hard for you to believe this, but it was. Mm. Think about that. And so the black population of Detroit had its own downtown, just on the cusp of the white downtown. And it had its own complete separate Club B and C, all these are legendary nightclubs. And people are being discovered and signed to labels. And Lou Barnett was, was a, a veteran of all these clubs. 
And Paul, he's hearing this this old guy play sax on the gig. He's like, well, the leader of the band kind of sucks, but man, this sax player is blowing some stuff. Now, Lou Barnett, by this time I was 25, you know, and, and, and Lou was 65. He just retired from his Ford Motor Company. Or as they would say Ford's. And and we offered him a spot in our in our band of some messengers. We we'd been around for just a couple of years and we were starting to win back then it was called the Motor City Music Awards, it wasn't Detroit Music Awards, the Motor City Music Awards. And we were starting to win some awards and we were starting to, you know, make a little noise around Detroit. We were we were filling nightclubs. We were starting to pack people in at nightclubs around Detroit. Right. We were we were doing well. We were we were working 17, 18, 20, 25 nights a month just staying in Detroit. Yep. We could play that much in Detroit. Play that many nights a week in Detroit. Filling clubs. This is how people went out. Yeah. There was, there was, there was no Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They hadn't changed the drunk driving. I mean, people were going out to party. Young people, old people. We would play at, at, at Alvin's Finer Deli right there in Cass, which is now that place Tony's, I guess it is. I don't know what Tony it is. Tony's. Or maybe it's the, maybe it's the, now it's the, uh, 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 uh uh, Carhartt, I don't know what it was. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's Tony yeah. V's. Yeah. yeah, okay. It's Back then, it was a great place called Alvin's. And you would play for, over there, and, and you could make 900 bucks on a slow night, 1500 bucks on a good night, any Friday or Saturday night of the year. Wow. At the door, $5 a head. And in the audience, it would be packed, and there would be a 21-year-old and a 22-year-old boyfriend, girlfriend dancing, and next to them would be they're, they're, they're professors from Wayne State. They might be 55 <laughs> or 65. Wow. People came out. It didn't matter how old you were. There was no ageism. There were, there were black people, white people. Things, people were mixed up when we in our youth. It was like that. Oh, yeah, man. People didn't care, you know? It didn't like, oh, there's old people here. There's young people. There's nobody cared about that stuff, you know? If you dug the music, it was your spot. Come on in. And people came out. People, we used to play this place called Galligan's. It was just a roof deck bar. It only fit like 60 people. We made $1,000 at the door at that gig always. And it was still five bucks a head. Because people, wow. they would get turnover. People would come and go. Thousand mm -hmm. bucks. Wow. At the door. People came out. Well, we, you could have a 10-piece band when we were kids because people came out to support live music. And we had rooms in Traverse City, Two in Lansing, two, I mean, two in Ann Arbor, one in Lansing, one in Kalamazoo, one, two in Grand Rapids. And then we would, we would start expanding to other states. That's what we did back then, right? So Lou Barnett comes and joins our group. Yeah, and, late, and, and it late was, 83, early yeah, 84. So maybe early now. I don't know. I can't remember. But it could have been as early as late 1983. Could yeah. Have been like November. But. But like we were, like I said, we were we were modernists, you know. We were like Coltrane, you know. That was that was, we were that we were into you know jazz, you know. I'm I'm here. Look, I'm, look at my shirt. Look what I'm wearing, you know. Yeah. And and and, and uh, just on record, RJ's wearing a a train hoodie. Hoodie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like stupid cool. <laughs> <laughs> I still am a modernist, but I I love it all, right? So. I'm playing with Lou on, on stage, and he's he's playing. He plays Body and Soul, and I'm telling you, he sounds 
just like Coleman Hawkins. I mean, it's unbelievable. And it's not like you're hearing on some scratchy old record. It's this guy six feet away from you on stage. And to have that revelatory feeling and to feel that in your heart and your soul, it, 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 it knocks you out. And it changed us. Like, like James O'Donnell and, and T-Bone and I and Rick, our, our, my co-leader, like Rick was already into swing music, you know, mad at that point, you know. And, but but the, the three of us, it changed us for the rest of our lives. Like, uh, there was a guy named Russell Green who was kind of the equivalent of them on trumpet. He'd played in a Jimmy Lunsford band. He retired to Detroit and was playing around town. He took James and T-Bone in as their protégés on brass, and they studied with him. And that's why James can play all that wild swing-era trumpet stuff on, on the trumpet, and that's he, he, he taught T-Bone the same thing on the trombone. But it changed the way I wanted to, to, to play music from then on mm -hmm. because I heard what he was doing, you know? I, I, I suddenly, I'll always want to play modern jazz, but now I want also, I want, I want all of it. I don't want to just play one slice. Mm -hmm. It's all there for me. It's all there for you, too. It's all for all of us. The Great American Songbook, New Orleans jazz, the twenties, the thirties. It's all of this is there for all of us, is what I believe. That's mm. all I want to say. Yeah. Mm. Well, that was a a wonderful story. Man, I'd, it's I'd, like it's so nice to you hear. You guys are just pouring so much information out. Yeah. It is so warming. Yeah. It feels so great. I mean, <laughs> you wouldn't like I'm glad that people get to hear these stories mm -hmm. because if they didn't, they would have to come and ask you guys and like come over your houses and, you know, do that stuff. But I'm glad we get to provide that for mm -hmm. people in Detroit and people who are who are outside of Detroit and, and they get to see the history of what what has happened. Right. I mean, it's, I feel like it's still that what that entity. I mean, that spirit of what you guys are talking about is still here. Right. You know, it's still here. It's it's like dimmed down, but I still I, I genuinely think that people are still hungry. I hope know? so. You know, I always say that I learned that stuff when I was, you know, I was. I was 25 playing with a man who was 65. And now next week, I'm going to be 64 years old next week. You know, woo -woo, woo -woo. wow. Yeah. What are we doing? And, and uh, I, <laughs> well, I need to freshen my uh, cocktail. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'll probably roll something. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I, I always say that, uh, that, you know, in our band, we have, we have Matt LaRusso on guitar, who's, who's knocking on 30, and, 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 and Jeff Cooney, who's just a little younger than him on bass. You know, and, and, and our, our, our thought is, you know, 40 years from now, they'll be playing these songs with some people and say, you know, 40 years ago, I learned this song from these two crazy old guys, T-Bone and RJ. <laughs> and we will, and they learned it from 40 years ago from a guy named Lou Barnett. And it's a part of a continuum for black music being passed on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. That's the, am I right, T-Bone? No, it's absolutely the goal. It's, 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 it's ultimately still an oral history. It's a gift mm -hmm. that we're trying to pass on. It's you an know? oral history. I mean, it was definitely 
a lot of it was still orally done, even mm. even in the 20th century. Even you know, even when you had sheet music and you had records, it was still elders passing it on to the youngers. And then the, this also goes back to this transplantation of holding on to history and keeping it and preserving it and giving it to the next generation. And this goes back to what RJ's original first point of griots, mm. which really are from the horn of, the, of pretty much most of Western Africa, you know, Mali and, and this, these are itinerant history passers. These are itinerant spiritual musicians that traveled the back roads and all the villages to move through areas to tell people their collected stories. And in return for that, they would get housing and food. I'm good mm -hmm. for now. Yeah, you know, so <laughs> so that's 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 just that whole idea of of you know passing it on and passing it forward, and and that legacy's real, and yeah, that is a nice thought. Hopefully, we will do that. You know, you know, I, I just. Uh, I see myself as a regular, uh, just a regular guy, but you know, my my buddy RJ is pretty special, you know, because the the uh, the bio that you're reading is is about our relationship together as musical yeah. brothers in mm. in regards to this record, but RJ's career is much deeper and much more vast, and the things that he's done are truly remarkable. Mm. And uh, and I'm I'm grateful to be in that uh, I'm grateful to be in in in, uh, in in his orbit. And you know we're all and we're equals and dear brothers and lifelong brothers yeah. in music and stuff. But you know, uh, RJ, just just for the audience, the listening audience, to know that this bio that you read is is definitely geared towards our record project together and yeah. focusing on me probably more than rj and sure. uh his his career is uh, truly remarkable and and it's worthy uh, of of uh, a numerous podcast you could interview rj probably for 12 hours sure on, talk a lot on, on, <laughs> yeah. uh on all of the people that he's worked with you know and johnny bassett and albert adams and uh and on and on and on and on and, uh, the, the pioneers of motown did, did you look at my my own uh bio as well yeah mm -hmm. yeah okay. we we wanted to we wanted to include both of you guys since yeah we're having yeah, both of you yeah. on the podcast i understand yeah um you you mentioned how like you know you are still teaching orally we just had um sean dobbins on the podcast and he <laughs> yeah. was uh oh, brilliant kid he yeah, amazing amazing drummer so cool and yeah. he was talking about how like you know you would have musicians like and educators would be like, go on the bandstand, and the person just like, I don't know, I don't know how to, I don't know what tune they're playing. Yeah, go on anyways, you know. So it's just like it's an amazing thing to like hear that that is not only is that like that's still happening. So it is like it isn't. It's really interesting how you guys are mentioning that it is an oral tradition. That's how you guys are learning. You guys have not only are you guys continuing the tradition, but you are rooted in the tradition. So it's really sure. nice to yeah to be able to hear that. Um. We want to kind of talk about, you know, your time in the Sun Messengers and how that kind of has carried over to, you know, your other bands like your quartet and the Planet D, Nanette. You know, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the, the lineage moving from those sure. bands and stuff? Well, yeah, let me pick it up as the lineage because that's a good way of putting it. Um, after, in, in, in my mid-30s, 
I'd been at Sun Messenger then for, I don't know, about 17 years, and I thought, wow, I've been with this band my entire life. And, and uh, I thought, <laughs> I had a three-way kind of band leadership with, with my partner Rick and, and my buddy Paul. I thought, personally, I could do better as my own leader. You know, I love them. They're smart guys, but I didn't want to have to bounce ideas off anybody else anymore. I wanted to make my own decisions. And 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 Rick would be better off without me bouncing ideas off of me. He could run the band better. He has done very well doing it his own way without me being there. I'm trying to be delicate here and not insult anybody because I love Rick. But I think that Rick had his own idea of how he wanted to run the Sun Messengers. And I and I had been there a long time, and they were moving into being like more of a an event band, mm. and I, I didn't want to be in an event band. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to play for live audiences. Still, I I knew that I can get record deals. They'd kind of give them up on that idea, you know, but I knew I could do that, and I did. I saw a guitar player at the jazz festival named Johnny Bassett. I went and got his phone number. I called him up. I said, I met him at a gig that he was playing. Uh, we talked. And I said, look, let me book you on a little gig. I'll put a little band together around you with some of my friends. And we'll play a little gig. And I packed this little bar with my friends. And he said, his eyes were wide. He goes, okay, let's, let's do some stuff. I got that guy a contract, a little label in Detroit, a label in Minneapolis, a label in New York City. A label in Netherlands. You know, I was able to do some stuff with him. We toured mm-hmm. through the United States, coast to coast in Canada, and all throughout Europe. And I did all that, you know, before I was 40 with him. Between 35 and 40, I was able to do all that. All after leaving the Sun Messengers. Wow. That's the smartest thing I ever did. I knew that if I left the Sun Messengers, I still had this in me. Right? So after a couple years with Johnny, I started adding some people to my stable, other other artists along that line. And for 15 years, that's what I did. I started booking these artists, and my I put a band together to back them. And I sent them around the country and across Europe and getting them record deals and doing that same thing. They were all older artists, and eventually they all died off. But they were all singers, and I love singers. Let me go on the record here. Jazz guys, don't diss singers. Your dad's a great singer, Dominic Waddles. I love people who entertain people. Folks come to bars to have a good time. Now, jazz, as you know, I'm a modernist. I love Coltrane. I love jazz. I love solos. I love all that stuff. But people come to have a good time. You have played on some gigs with me and T-Bone. You see what we're doing. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to talk about that. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I'm just, I'm just, it's a little aside about getting to that. But people come out to have a good time. You know, we don't just play jazz clubs. We play bars that are just bars. And we're just trying to make a living. So you can't, every bar can't be some 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 exclusive jazz joint where everyone's clapping after so, after solos. Sometimes you're just making a living, entertaining people, and that's how you make a living. 
That's where you make a living, is being able to play a lot of places. That's how you can play 20 nights a month. And we, we had 21 gigs last, last, Mar, uh, last February. 21 gigs, T-Bone and I and the band did. 21 gigs. We're set to do the same thing in March, except COVID came along and nipped our wings. Anyway, so I did that for a bunch of years. And then all those old, their singers were older. And, and eventually that, that, that period of my life ended. But I, I had a great run doing that. And, and, and I made some, some, some darn good records. And I saw the world from the back of a van or a, or a plane playing with some really great musicians. Keith Kaminsky, who, who now he's been, for 15 years now, he's been with Bob Seger, Dwight Adams. How many years has he been with uh, Stevie. Stevie Wonder? Mm-hmm. Some of his very first tours of the year with, with playing with us and, and his projects that I'm talking about, you know? Um, we had great, we made great records and, and, and great times, and these are dear, dear lifelong friends. Um, anyway, when that came to an end, I said, you know, when I started with the Sun Messengers, I never really finished, I felt. You know, the, the beginning of the Sun Messengers, because before it turned into an event band, we had, a, we had some stuff that we were doing, and, and uh, I want to pick that up again. So I called up T-Bone and James, and we started practicing in 2007, and that's the Planet D. And, and so, really, the kind of the, the New Orleans side of that band, we, we keep going with the, the project with Timo. Like, you guys are part of this whole thing that we're talking about, like, you know, passing this on, like this mm-hmm. information. Like, like, you know, Matt went to MSU and, and Jeff went to Michigan State. But they didn't have all this information that I've talked about so far. Mm-hmm. They didn't know that they're, they're apparently jazz history classes at either of these colleges. They don't talk about all the stuff that I talk about. I feel like because there's so much history, you know, you got all the scenes. You know, you can't yeah. you can't encapsulate all the scenes of maybe that's jazz it. in like one semester. Well, they they take it in a uh, um a way where it's uh it's like this is the general of jazz mm-hmm. because there's many I would say twenty percent of the class of my jazz history class they weren't even music majors these right. are people that were taking that were business I know. majors my 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 nephew people. my nephew took Vincent Chandler's yeah, class yeah. and he's a business major <laughs> right right and it's just like yeah it's great because. Even me, I learned new records. Like one great record that uh, I I didn't know about was um, when Marsalis Black Codes. Oh, I know that. Record. I didn't know anything about that, but he yeah. played it. I was like, man, this is this is out of the world. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And then yeah. each teacher has their own their own niche. And I uh, Vincent Chandler's was mainly a lot of Coltrane, and sure. I really liked that. Well, yeah, so, you can't go wrong with Coltrane. The other thing about the the jazz history classes, it's like because it's such a small time frame for, you know, teaching all this stuff, especially trying to talk about like the essence of it, you know, you can't like, you know, talk about somebody like Sun Ra, they're going to like, they're not going to, you know, show off all of his music. They're going to be like, what made Sun Ra Sun Ra? Oh, they might show some of his like really more avant-garde stuff. Right. But they might not talk about like, 
uh, Lanquidity. Or, yeah, or like his more like grooving stuff. Yeah, right. Know, that kind of That's stuff. Lanquidity, yeah. 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 I'm thinking of a song and I can't think of it right now, but uh, it's very similar to like Pharaoh Sanders, like Creator Has a Master Plan oh, okay. kind of vibe. And, yeah. and I can't, I just can't. Well, he covered a lot of ground. Yeah. I one time I saw, I saw, I saw him at, you guys know who Donald Walden was? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Donald Walden had a loft uh, in Detroit that he presented jazz at. And I, I saw, Oh yeah. So I saw Donald, I saw Sunrise at Donald Walden's loft one time. And one time in the middle of the show, he just broke it down to Sunrise, the drummer. And there's the one time I saw him with the sax player, Pat Patrick. You know, Pat Patrick's on all those classic old 50s Sunrise records. But he didn't tour with the band in the years that I saw him, except for this one time. And Rob broke it down to like 40 minutes of just playing Barrel House Blues on piano with the drummer at Pat. Mm-hmm. I never saw it before. It was a one time. The the record I was thinking of was Sleeping Beauty. I don't know that one. By Sun Ra. All right. But it is... Uh, yeah, it's like a thousand. Yeah, it's more of a, <laughs> it is more like groove-oriented stuff. This is from 79. Ah. But it is like kind of in the languidity yeah. kind of vibe. Yeah. Rod did a lot of stuff, man. Yeah. Jazz history is very complicated. It, it, you know, in, in, a, in a traditional university music course, mm-hmm. uh, a degree, and you'd, you'd have to study European music history for three, four years, you mm-hmm. know, four, eight, four, eight, 12 semesters, you know. Yeah. And that's really the way jazz history needs to be taught because. Yeah, five hundred years of classical development in classical art forms have been shrunk down to fifty in jazz. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's like this intense distillation and squeezing on 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 this European art form, squeezing it down from five hundred years to fifty years, and then all of this rhythm based, syncopation based aspects colliding with this European pedagogy just in the last couple of years and, and just bam all down into 50 years and then yeah. in top of that then you have all of the societal and uh, uh political and social pressures of the 20th century and all of the advancements in speeding up the 20th century all at the same time this modernization all of this happens at the same time so there's no way that you could cover it all because jazz is way deeper than the sound mm. there's so much more involved in it what was going on uh, sociologically, uh, politically, uh, on, on the race front, on, right. on the injustice front, yeah. uh, on, on, on the education front, yeah. on, mm-hmm. on the, uh, on the political, uh, uh, on the uh, political standing up for your beliefs front on everything. You could do a semester of jazz history on Pittsburgh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could do a whole semester of a jazz sure. history course on Pittsburgh. Yeah, or exactly. Philly. Or Philly. Or Detroit. Or, you Chicago. Know, it, it, it's just Chapter, way, way, Diet. way too deep. You know, yeah, it's right. just way too deep. It's just that's what makes this art form so amazing. And that's got a lot to do with why it's gone all over the world. Sure. Yeah, the other thing is like there's like literally like you said, it's there's there's so much that like the most of what is spent on is like what made jazz like jazz like louis armstrong miles davis charlie parker like these huge names that like right you know but the The giants the more specific stuff it's like i think that's what made jazz too and i think that part of like you know you were mentioning like this 500 years of 
uh, like classical music. It's like I think part the the a huge contrast is the that jazz in itself is like this innovation music. Like how much what can you do to like go take it to the next step? You know. Yeah. And in mm-hmm. in classical music, a lot of it was like sticking to the grain and like just you know being like kind of like the pencil pusher and there was really like less innovators i would say in classical music except for when you get to like 20th century you know but like in jazz it was like every single person needs to be like you know your own unique voice describing exactly exactly yeah you know well you know a couple years ago i was lucky enough to receive a uh, uh, a grant from uh, the Knight Foundation to put on a bunch of concerts at the Scarab Club, mm-hmm. which really pushed me to come up with new material for each of these concerts. I had to put on five concerts in two years with whole new repertoires for each one. It's like like they do at the Jazz Lincoln Center. You know, each of these yeah. concerts are little, you know, it was hellaciously difficult for me because I I had to it was fifty two thousand dollars, which wow. is expen- you know, impressive, right? But you have to you have to Raise matching funds. You think about that. You have to raise fifty-two thousand dollars to go with that to get that money. Now, some of it can be in-kind donations, mm. but that you have to raise money to go with it, right? Mm-hmm. And there's educational components, so you have to put on events that are educational around each of these events. So this this was a, this was a daunting task, you know. Now, God bless the Knight Foundation for 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 offering this thing. You know, they they gave they awarded this. It was through the Scarab Club. They gave it officially to the Scarab Club for my concert series, and and uh, uh, but it pushed the hell out of me. You know, but out of that time, you know, the, like my guys, like Jeff and 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 uh, Matt, who I'm talking about, what they they learned, like they learned a whole repertoire of of Louis Jordan tunes. Repertoire of of of, uh, of uh, uh, Buddy Johnson tunes, whole mm-hmm. repertoire of uh, of uh, 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 Benny Moten tunes. You know, uh, we did one of Ellington's small groups. Uh, we we did uh, we did a project of, of Thelonious Monk uh, with uh, um, yeah, right there's a, a box of CDs right there in front of you there, Rob Monkstein. No, that box right, right in front of me. Yeah, that's it. This is this is my our latest CD. I spent the today um, filling envelopes with these, and this is our our latest CD. And it's it's a uh, Planet Dino Net with with John Sinclair. Mm-hmm. And I put the I just spent the afternoon filling envelopes with these bad boys. And this is us at the Scare Club as part of this Night Foundation series. And they're starting. This is the first. Second CD to come out. We had the, we had the Kings of Kansas City, which was that was a really hard project. We had uh, a thirty some page booklet that Jim Gallert wrote about. It was an essay that he wrote about you know Jim you know you know Jim Gallert, He does the jazz top tent at the jazz festival. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, and he wrote that book, Jazz Detroit, before Motown with Lars Bjorn. I think they were mentioning it last year at the Jazz Festival. Well, every year at the Jazz Festival, there's the Jazz Talk Ten. Yeah, yeah, right, I right. know about it's that. Right in the middle. Okay, well, these are the two guys, and, and, and they're great guys. They're both friends of mine. You can imagine T Bone and I 
these are kind of guys, jazz nerds that we would be hanging out with, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> uh, we've known uh, Jim Gellert all of our lives, pretty much. Mm. Um, I'm going to have to get off and talk about Jim in a minute here because it goes back to an early part of my life. But this is, folks, in, in, in podcast land, we do have a new CD out, and I wish you would go to Bandcamp and go to the Planet Dino Net page and think about getting it because it just came out. It's with my mentor, um, John Sinclair, who uh, does his odes to uh, Lonious Monk. And mm. we do two instrumental uh, arrangements by Scott Gwinnell. And then we, yeah. do, we do two songs where, where we back up John doing poetry. Uh, he, he does one poem which is kind of like about Tyree Guyton's art and then brings it back to Monk. It's kind of fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's our latest CD. And we have the CD with, with, with John here. Now, I, I, Jim Gallert was on WDET for, what, close to 20 years. Yeah. He was hired to work at WDET by my Uncle Bud. My Uncle Bud was the music director at WDET in 1972. And you guys don't know about my Uncle Bud, but he played in the band called Tribe. Do you guys know the band The Tribe? Possibly. The Tribe was a super group when I was a kid. It was, the front line was Marcus Belgrave, Wendell Harrison, Bill Ranlin on trombone, Harold McKinney on piano, uh, bass player named Rod Hicks, and my uncle bought on drums. The drummer before my uncle was George Davidson, and after my uncle moved out to California, it was George Davidson again. It was the super group of jazz in Detroit in the, in the mid to late 70s, the tribe. And they, they, you know, a couple years ago, they made a group, a record called the Philadelphia Experiment, which kind of brought like hip hop elements to. Oh, yeah. They made the Detroit Experiment. It was based on the tribe. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah I've listened to that record. There's Damon Warmack and Kelvin Scholar on it. Marcus is on it. Yes. Jerry Allen it's is on it. Based on the tribe. Yeah. Wow. My uncle was a drummer in the tribe, and he was also at WDET. And before WDET, before my uncle at WDET, it was all classical music. And my uncle came along as music director, and he came in, white guy with an afro. I was white guy with an afro too, by the way. And and uh, <laughs> and he came in and busted it wide open and brought in jazz. And, and my uncle's radio show was called Jazz Today, where he played Coltrane and a whole bit, Elvin Eiler, all that stuff. And, and and Wayne Shorter and and the bookend show was Jazz yesterday with Jim Jim Gallard. and Jim's lasted for another close to twenty years through many different regime changes in public radio, and Jim is our lifelong dear friend and and really a jazz mentor to us because n- nobody knows more about early jazz than Jim Gallard in Detroit, in my humble opinion. Maybe not so humble opinion, folks, because <laughs> I know a little bit about jazz. And I know a little something about this earlier jazz thing. And T-Bone, yeah, pick, pick up. You talk a little bit. true, you? man. Talk Jim, about Jim Gallard. Jim, Jim Gallard's jazz yesterday show is amazing, man. Hey, I'll, 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 I'll add this, a caveat. Every year at, at, at Cliff Bell's, and you know I worked at Cliff Bell's for three years as the entertainment director, and for, it's been a tradition for a decade or more, James Carter comes in and does a, a, a gypsy jazz show at Christmas time. At, at at Cliff Bell's yeah. every year, and every year his MC is always Jim Gallard, and he always talks about how he heard Django Reinhardt on Jim's show. 
Jim is, is his 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 mentor for old jazz records. He always calls up Jim, and Jim burns some things, and and and, and they talk on the phone and keep in touch. Absolutely, absolutely. that's the esteem. That, that Jim Gallard is held in by people even like Jim uh, James Carter. Mm-hmm. James Carter would call uh, Jim Gallard on the on the phone to request when 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 he was in high school he would re- have, have requesting Jim to play Adrian Rolini so that he could hear Adrian Rolini play the bass saxophone. You guys don't know Adrian Rolini was a wild uh, multi instrumentalist. You, are you googling Adrian Rolini right now? Yeah. Good. I love that about you, Mark. <laughs> yes, Adrian Rolini was was a, 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 a interesting multi. He played the vibraphone and the bass sax, and and, and uh, his brother was a musician too. And yes, he was a kind of a contemporary of the of the Benny Goodman and that kind of era, twenties uh, into the thirties kind of guy. And he played many instruments and and. Uh, Live a fairly long life and exist anyway. Yeah, uh, so people, that would be no no problem for Jim Geller because he had a record collection that would fill these walls, and he would just oh, go well, go nuts. and pull out his Adrian Molini records and take him to WDET and play Adrian Molini for Jim. He had the record. He already had him. You know, he knew exactly what he was talking about. No problem. Yep. Just let me get him, and I'll play him for you. Yeah, that's a great example. Yes, we used to go to Jim's house. When Rick and I, Rick Stagger and I, would go to Jim Geller's house when we were in high school. Just kids wanting to learn about jazz, and, and Rick knew Jim, and so he says, "Yeah, go to my friend Jim, Jim's house over in Oak Park." Okay, I said, "Okay." So I go over. We go to Jim's house, and, and we're like, you know, jazz nerds going to our buddy's house in high school. And Jim's older than us. He, he's he's a grown man. I mean, he's like twenty five, and we're you know we're like seventeen, and we're, we're we're all you know jazz nerds sitting in the bedroom at some guy's house, you know, <laughs> listening to records, you know, and he's. He's playing as James P. Johnson and his, you know, and you know, crazy, you know, record, you know, records and stuff. And, and his bedroom, like you're sitting in the bed and there's like records lined up against here, you know what I mean? There's records on the wall, there's records, I mean, there's records everywhere. But you go out of the bedroom and there's there's lines of records against the wall going into the living room. And then there's records in the living room. His mom and dad are sitting there watching TV and there's records around the living room. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, Jim. Jim, oh yeah, Jim, he's a yeah, special guy, man. Yeah, he he's a he's a record guy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he just retired from his day job uh, last year, and is a beautiful cat. Now James Carter, we we met him when he was uh, not even uh, he he was in junior high school, and uh, by fifteen we were hiring him on gigs, and he was subbing in our band as our messengers. Wow. Well, oh yeah. Yeah. We took him on his very first gig out of very state. First road trip, yeah. Yep. <laughs> he played my brother's fraternity in in, in uh, Atlanta. Mm. <laughs> his first gig out of state in his entire life. That's awesome. And it was mom and dad. I know all his brothers. We used to go. Here's a story, because we played a lot of weddings in the Sun Messengers, right? We used to play this 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 wedding palace out in. Uh, in Macomb County, called the, the the Hillcrest Club. Now it's no longer there. I don't think it's probably some other name. But you remember the Hillcrest Club, John? Oh yeah. yeah the loaded was always greasy and a little dangerous. Like you might slip on your ass because the, the it was so greasy going in and out. You know, it was just this was really, 
This is where you load in and load out. It was like, Jesus oh, no. Christ, you're taking your, your life in your hands because the floor is just so slippery, oh, you know? Oh, my gosh. But they, well, <laughs> well, I know I know clubs like that, but they're not like like jazz clubs. It's like... No, this is this is, uh, this is like several floored place, you know? Oh, and it was very, very uh, 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 Italian, you know? So, like, they would have the... the, the, the uh, uh, they would play the candy man, and they would bring up this giant sweets uh, thing. Remember that, Chad? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it would be... 300 Italian people at his weddings and stuff. You know? But they had a club, you know, a separate nightclub. You know, in addition to being a, a, a wedding venue, they had a nightclub, a top 40 nightclub. And they had a house band. And the house band, James Carter's brother had the gig. And James Carter's brother, Rob Carter, he's like to singing what James is to the saxophone. Mm. Like James Carter has chops of steel and can blow and, and circular breathe and go all night long and do all that stuff. Rob Carter could play six nights a week as the only singer in a top 40 band. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Rob Carter. Am I right, John? Oh, yeah, man. We would go and watch him on our breaks and go, look at this mother. Sing high notes, a falsetto. They're just, just tearing up R&B tunes. Just... It was this magic. It was it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he's still around. No, oh, yeah, he's an amazing guy. So, kind of moving on to uh, talking about you guys' experience in Detroit and just the Detroit music scene and how it has impacted your life and maybe how you have impacted the Detroit music scene with PD Nine. Well, now you don't know. Uh, wrench hit the whole affair, haven't you? Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm a reactionary kind of guy. I, you know, we, we, John and I, we just keep on going and do what we do. And we hope that that, that uh, people like what we do. I, 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 I've been at this a long time and developed a, a certain amount of contacts, and and, and so people keep on hiring me. Uh, they say, "What what are you doing now, RJ?" and 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 they they bring me back. Am I right, John? Yeah, I'm lucky for that. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that that's what I can say about Detroit. You know, uh, I've been at it a long time, and, and I, I I'm a fairly, I'm a fairly genial person. You know, do you know what I mean by that? I like Explain. to get I like to get along with people. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. I like I like people, and I like to get along with them. And I've made a lot of friends in this business. I hate it when they retire because I have to make friends with the next guy. True. You know, uh, sometimes they go and the next guy isn't as nice as the last one. But, you know, this is the business I'm in. You know, I've been at it a long time. Um... I never wanted to leave Detroit. My uncle left Detroit. He he, he was he was like I said he he's a drummer, and he was a public radio broadcaster, and he was also a producer. He produced live events like a, a he had a great jazz series he did at uh, Cranbrook, you know, mm-hmm. and then he got offered uh, to run a jazz station in in California, in San Francisco, so he took it. I don't blame him. 
And he had lived the rest of his life in California. And he ended up running running a, a great jazz series out there called Jazz at Filoli. An incredible jazz series. And he got a he got a weekly paycheck year round for running like a, a 20 week jazz series out there. And he got a weekly paycheck for a once a week radio show on public radio out there. And then he played gigs. And he produced he was the number one producer of jazz recordings in the Bay Area. Well, he had, he had many many recordings that were uh, Grammy considered. He didn't he got any Grammys, but he was he was on a cusp all the times, you know, Taylor mm-hmm. Ike and guys like that. You know, he did very well. He had a my uncle. I'm very proud of my uncle. I'm proud that you know. He he was a great jazz guy, and I'm a jazz guy, following in his footsteps. You know, I hope someone in my family picks up the gauntlet after me that doesn't die with me. You know, but. Uh, I never wanted to leave Detroit, you know. I, I, I love it here, you know. Detroit's, Detroit's my home. I'm, I'm planning mm. on being here until I'm not playing anymore, you know. If I mm. leave, it's because I'm not playing anymore, you know. It's just because I'm, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay watching the time go by, by you know. It's just something, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know what I'm saying, John? Mm-hmm. Detroit's been pretty good to us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, we like mm-hmm. we like seeing the rest of the world. I I I have been touring wise. I've been to 48 states, driven through. You know, uh, eight provinces, probably 20 trips to Europe. I've seen the world, but this is my home. Mm-hmm. Detroit's been, and I'm invested in y'all. You know. I want, I want, I want to see you guys be part of this. Mm. I want you, you, you two, to to get a piece of what's going on. And if I can help, I want to help. You know. We appreciate it. Really, yeah. Thank you. That's really yeah. warming, man. Yeah. Like that. That's important to me. You know. Uh, when I worked at Cliff Bell's. I tried to have a real balanced, I looked at the month and I said, well, what do I have here? You know, and I looked at all the different angles of what I could do. And I tried to make it a balanced picture, you know? And 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 that's what I did, you know? And and I enjoyed that gig, but it was time for me to get out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, glad I'm, I'm glad I'm not dealing that now. <laughs> Especially right now. Oh no, Oof. no, no, yeah. no! This is a good time for me to be at home. Uh, doing... <laughs> yeah, this is a good time. To... Look, look at this. I, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. You got you people know, coming living comfortably, asking to do a podcast. <laughs> you know. Oh. So, kind of. Uh, this is this is a question posed for both of you guys. Um, uh, we like to ask our guests about um, their gigs, uh, you know, and we we like to ask about your most humorous gigs. Obviously, you guys have done thousands, so oh my God. we're very curious <laughs> if you could mention to us some of your more humorous gigs that you might look back on. Maybe at the time were just not awesome, but now you look back. And you laugh at it, you know. I can't wait. Let for us this know. One. I'm I'm excited. This was like 
Chad, this is a tough question, man. Guys, you got to understand, man. It's a long time, man. 42 years of doing gigs. Funny gigs, they're hard to pull out because they're, you know, when you enjoy being with your musician buddies, every gig's a funny gig. You find ways to be. All the funny gigs, you got to name names to say something embarrassing about your friends. Yeah, I mean. All of them. As far as funny gigs, you know, well, I mean, maybe, but as far yeah. as funny experiences, sure, sure, yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's yeah, that's yeah, way that. easier. We had this school bus. Rick decided, Steiger decided, to, <laughs> the bus is us. The bus is us because nobody had cars. We did, but a lot of them were really, really beat up. And Janky. Other guys didn't have cars, and and we got this idea. We ended up. I went with. I went out to the to to the to the behind the airport to pick out this bus with Rick and this guy was exactly like Mr. Haney from uh, the Green Acres. He really was, you know. I mean, he was a guy who was offering us Mr. like... Mr. Douglas. Now, now, I got this good oil here for you, but over here, I'll sell you this reconditioned oil. He had ran it through a cheesecloth. You know, I mean, this was what this place is. What, you know, he said, oh, you guys need a bus. You're in a band. Okay, so he takes us over to this bus. And, and it's and it's like a rock and roll bus, like Spinal Tap, but it's tilted on one side. You know, like it's listing like no. like 10 degrees, you know. <laughs> well, what's wrong with this? Well, oh, that one just needs a little suspension work on that. Well, you can get that fixed. And Rick said, no, nah, you got to show me something else. And he says, well, what you need is a couple of busettes. And those are those little little buses, right? The, the proverbial short bus, right? You know, the short, <laughs> the short bus came to pick I know, me up. I love this story, John. This yeah, 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 yeah. Because you weren't there. No. And then, and then we landed on 57. 57, bus number 57, Detroit Public Schools from 1975, I think the bus was. And oh, we ended up, out of high school. We ended up buying 57 from, uh, from 74, 75 or something. And one night we were playing at Sully's, a great club uh, uh, in Dearborn. It was yep. near, it was near Christmas. It was like maybe the uh, uh, winter solstice. Maybe it was like Saturday the twenty first. And uh, and uh, my brother Fred was in from the East Coast, and he was hanging out with his buddy, and they were driving the Corvette, and they came out to see us, and gave him a great concert. And uh, friends and- a road scholar. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was back at that time. But uh, so on the way home, they went out to get some food. Uh, they went to Mexican town to get some food after the gig. And for some reason, we didn't stay and drink until five in the morning that night. What was wrong with us? Well, we probably had a gig the next morning we had to get ready to go to because we gigged a lot. And lo and behold, the bus broke down uh, eastbound 94. And my brother was zipped on by in the Corvette. We had we put a kunda up in, in up in the up in the steering wheel steering the bus cuz he Akunda is about 120 pounds soaking wet yeah he's a, a he was our, our he is our akanga player akunda lumumba he, he's a beautiful and talented guy he, he's played with Aretha franklin he's 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 played with all kinds of he's a talented 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 cat but he is diminutive you know yeah. he's not a big man and he didn't have a license. He, he's never driven no, a car. He didn't have a license. No. He's never had a driver's license in his life. But we weren't worried because we knew that the bus was only going to go two miles an hour. We pushed the bus up the ramp, up the Harper exit, off I ninety four. This was the this was a bus completely filled with PA and, a, and equipment for a thirteen piece ensemble. Oh, oh yeah, I think it was. We had when, risers, yeah, like yeah. big big stage risers, or made out of plywood and and, and, and two by fours. 
Oh, we had all kinds of gear. Yeah, we pushed we that were, thing we off of the freeway. We were ready to go, man. We pushed the thing off of the freeway and rolled it all the way home, the final mile home. And somehow we pushed that bus up off the freeway. And, and, and into Paul's backyard. And, and into Paul's backyard. Kunda steered it home at about a, at a half a mile an hour all the way there. He was having time of his life. And yes. Uh, yes. that was, it was yes. just, yeah, it was. And, and I don't know, it might have even been, no, I think it was before Lyman Woodard was in the band. Uh, so You guys so know Lyman Woodard? We didn't have the Hammond B3 no. in the uh, in Lyman the Woodward organization is yeah, like yeah, a classic like, Detroit stable. Yeah, he was yeah. A, a legendary Hammond organist in yeah. Detroit. He was in our band for a couple of years. And, 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 oh, you have to ask. You, you guys need to have Leonard King in this podcast. Ah, uh, you should. You yeah, need so. Leonard King in this podcast. W-A-W-I-D-Y. Wow, that was a magnificent conversation. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe on all our social media, and we hope to see you soon.